the popular conception of the runic script is coloured by a trio of vague and unholy influences, namely a connection with fortune-telling and the occult, an association with Tolkien and the fantasy realm of Middle-earth, and rather more disturbingly, a lingering association with Nazi iconography. Indeed, the bane of my life as a research student is having to explain to numerous friends and relatives that the runes were not invented by either dwarves, Germanic nationalists, or an imaginative Oxford professor, and they really are not much use for predicting the future. Even amongst academics used to hearing about hieroglyphs and cuneiform, Sanskrit and Etruscan, talking of runes usually raises a small smile. It's become the script of cranks, associated more often than not with modern cultural trends than with its past as a living script. In this paper, I'll look briefly at these three areas of myth-making, and in the process, hope to give some sense of what the runic alphabet was used for by its original practitioners in Northern Europe. But to start with, and to avoid compounding the myth from the outset, it's perhaps worth giving a quick overview of the form and nature of the script. The runic alphabet is more properly referred to as the Futhark, named like the alphabet after the initial sequence of letters. There's a great deal of contention over the precise date and exact location in which the script originated, but a century or so after Christ in Denmark or northern Germany is perhaps a reasonable surmise. It continued in use until the early modern period in Scandinavia, was exported to the British Isles first with the Anglo-Saxons and then with successive waves of Viking settlers, who also took knowledge of the script to Iceland, Greenland and even Constantinople, where you can still clearly see Viking graffiti in the gallery of the Hagia Sophia. They also carved graffiti on the lion now guarding the Venetian arsenal, one of the most photographed monuments in the city. It was adapted to represent a number of different languages on stone monuments, metalwork, bone, leather, and even in early manuscripts, which is where my particular interest lies. It was almost certainly inspired by a Mediterranean script, Latin, Greek, or North Italic, and many of the letter forms can be rationalised by their utility for carving onto wood. As you can see here, horizontal lines are eliminated as they would simply disappear with the grain. Each rune has a meaningful name, meaningful in the sense that it shared it with an object or concept, such as feu for property or wealth, and uruz, probably meaning aurochs or wild ox. Whilst the initial sound gave the letters their phonetic value and enabled the script to perform as a conventional alphabet, a single letter could also be used ideographically to represent its name, as you might use the number eight in the sentence, I ate a lovely dinner at St. Cross. There is a precedent for such an acrophonic principle in other script systems, including Greek, but using current, meaningful words is much rarer. And for the strange arrangement of the letters, there's no precedent or linguistic rationale. It's from the mystery surrounding the conception of the runic script that much of the speculation has developed. Did the strange arrangement of letters have a cultic significance? Was it believed to have some power above that of representing language? Was it an expression of cultural distinctiveness from the Roman Empire? Or was it simply a misremembering of the Latin script, brought into use by mercenaries who had served in the armies of Rome and recognised the utility of having a system to represent the spoken word? It's perhaps because it's difficult to answer any of these questions emphatically, that even the most outlandish of ideas have been allowed to gain currency and enter into the collective consciousness. Runes were a loaded term long before Tolkien cast his lots with the imaginative runologists and thrust them into the mythological melting pot of Middle Earth. The distortion of runes really starts in medieval Iceland, where saga authors and poets, looking back to the age of settlement in Iceland, often use the runes as picturesque props, 
in their evocation of the past. Crediting the sagas as historical documents, romantic nationalist movements from the late 18th century onwards disseminated a conception of the runes as mystical letters, bound up with paganism and a defiant northern spirit. This is the very same movement that created the enduring image of the Viking with horned helmet, quaffing ale from the skulls of his victims. The rune was the savage letter, the potent letter, smiting, burning, blood red, and even as one Alice Edwards put it, wreathed in witched or rural light. Whilst in the early 20th century the study of runology was finally reaching firmer ground, it was almost inevitable that fascism, which was in many ways a direct intellectual descendant of romantic nationalism, should appropriate the runes as it did almost every aspect of northern mythology and culture. The Austrian poet and occultist Guido von Liszt was the driving force behind the particular brand of rune law fashionable in 1930s Germany, and as a measure of just how unscholarly he was, he created his own perfect variation of the alphabet, supposedly revealed to him in a vision. Hitler, whilst wary of von Liszt's delusions, promoted the esoteric study of runes where it suited his scheme of Aryan revivalism. I've already mentioned that the name of the second rune was Auroch, or Wild Ox, and you may have seen in the news last week a story about an Aurochs-like creature being reared on a farm in Devon. This impressive animal, scaring passing hikers, is a descendant of a Nazi backbreeding experiment to try and recreate a primeval Aryan beast, and is a measure lengths to which they would go to reappropriate the past. The racialising of the runes would have remained just another ridiculous historical footnote, like that of the Devonshire Aurochs, were it not for the appropriation of runes in a much more iconic and visual way, mainly due to Himmler's consultation with a leading national mystic in the design of the insignia of the SS. Himmler had at his disposal a whole collection of ready-made symbols expressing what he saw as Aryan sensibilities, and they were readily incorporated into the iconography of the Third Reich. As well as the infamous and reviled symbol of the SS, the runes were also used to denote various organisations and military units. The final symbol on the far side there, which looks like an arrow, was especially favoured by Himmler, and it was awarded on graduation from officer training schools in the early years of the Reich. It was known as the Death Rune, and as Lumsden and Hannon point out, often replaced the Christian cross on the graves of SS soldiers. It would therefore have been especially visible and particularly reviled. The iconography of the Third Reich was chillingly effective, and these images are still extremely repugnant, and will, like the swastika, remain so for a long time to come, especially as runes are still used by a number of white supremacist groups. Incidentally, the Othola rune used by a division of the SS was adopted for a time last year as the symbol of the young BNP, a group which claims officially not to be racist. Knowing the recent history of this symbol gives one cause to question this claim. Unfortunately, however, however strong the resistance to such abuses of cultural heritage, and however benign the original symbol, imagery misappropriated in this way is often more powerful and enduring than the original referent and it's a sad fact that the study of runes will bear this burden of association for years to come. It's interesting to note that occasionally proponents of esoteric runology stray too far into the realms of the outlandish, even for the leaders of the Third Reich. A certain Friedrich Marby was responsible for creating a system of runic gymnastics, pictured here, which was supposed to channel cosmic power or Aryan energies through imitating the shapes of runes. This is my personal favourite. It seems a rather nonchalant pose for channeling cosmic energies, especially as he's naked. It's a rather amusing idea, I'm sure you'll agree, but one that didn't go down too well with its less open-minded superiors. 
Marby was imprisoned in 1936 for, quote, bringing the holy Aryan heritage into disrepute and ridicule. Marby survived his long incarceration in Dachau, and the bizarre quasi-racial mystification of runes survived as well, and flourishes in a variety of forms to this day, sometimes in the guise of neo-paganism. Inheritors of the mumbo-jumbo, if not the racism of the pre-war occultists, are the many fortune-tellers, healers, and New Age pagan groups that flourished in Europe and North America in the later 20th century, and which seem to have grown exponentially since the rise of the internet. The association of runes with fortune-telling rests almost entirely on an obscure reference to the casting of inscribed lots in Tacitus Germania. These were almost certainly not runes, as the reference is too early, but never being ones to let a solid fact stand in the way of a good prediction, modern occultists have developed runic prophesizing into a major industry. Those fortune tellers actually concerned with historical precedent, and they're few enough, cite the magical use of runes in genuine inscriptions. It's true that runes were sometimes used in magic formulas, such as the alu stamp found on a number of objects. Alu is cognate with modern English ale, and according to Polymer, it derives from the magical intoxicating effects of beer. How remarkably little priorities have changed over the years. So runic inscriptions could be numinous. What the New Age magicians don't understand is that all scripts were used for magic by a small proportion of the population. If you're going to write something to express your religion or supposed powers, you use the script that's available to you. I only wish Mystic Meg and her compatriots would use the Latin alphabet for their purposes and stop compounding the myth that the runes were inherently magical. As a measure of how successful they've been in appropriating the script and quite how father's conception has entered into the popular imagination, is demonstrated by the assimilation of the phrase to read the runes into everyday parlance, with the specific meaning of predicting the future. Whilst most of these attempts at rune magic are relatively harmless, it's worth remembering the abuses to which such esotericism has been put in the past, and that lurking amongst the many books and websites about runic power, amongst the felt bags of rune stones and CDs of runic yodeling, is the occasional more sinister racial agenda such as Ered Thorson's translation of a seminal work of fascist runology pictured here. The publishing of esoteric rune books outstrips academic production by at least 10 to 1, as a quick browse through the shelves of Blackwells will make immediately clear. Popular conceptions of the runes unfortunately reflect this trend. Move from the mind-body-spirit section to the children's department, and you'll perhaps come to the source of contemporary attitudes towards the script. Even before fortune-telling with runes had become fashionable, Runes have become a staple of fantasy literature, a device used in a rather lazy way to conjure up an aura of mystique and hidden knowledge. Of course, these books have the redeeming feature of not pretending to be anything other than fiction. But unlike elves and fairies and such like, runes have a real history that's obscured by their, their appropriation by the fantasy genre. For this obliteration of reality, we have to thank Professor Tolkien, a scholar I hate to speak badly of because he first inspired me to read and eventually to look beyond the fantasy to the rich world of old English poetry that he encodes in his fiction. And Tolkien's misappropriation of the runes is, of course, of a different nature to those mentioned previously. The runes were part of his professional remit as a scholar of Anglo-Saxon literature, and he certainly knew enough about the tradition to know that they had no historical association with either fascism or gymnastics. In fact, in a letter to his son, he describes a burning private grudge against Hitler for ruining, perverting, misapplying, and making forever accursed the northern spirit. We should perhaps read his own appropriation of the runes in light of this understandable resentment. 
Indeed, in The Hobbit, written before this private grudge had time to develop, the runes used on the dust jacket are genuine Anglo-Saxon runes, although somewhat stylized and used to write a modern English subtitle. It's only later, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, that Tolkien feels the need to set up an alternative mythical history for these runes, reinventing the tradition linguistically as well as culturally. Tolkien refers to two main writing systems used in Middle-earth, Tengwa, translated as letters, and Serta, quote, used only for scratched or incised inscriptions and equivalent to our runes. He also invents an older predecessor to the scripts that feature in the book and gives a table of this runic alphabet in Appendix E to the Lord of the Rings, which encompasses a total of 60 characters, some of them wholly invented and almost none of them phonetically equivalent to actual runes. He also systematizes their means of representing sounds, stating that, for example, adding a stroke to a branch added voice. This is the linguist fantasy. There's no such rationale in the genuine runic script, although Tolkien does adhere to history in highlighting their angular shapes developed for carving onto wood, and to their adoption and use by many peoples, some of whom use them as a script for the pen. I'd argue that highlighting such cross-cultural adoption and filling in the gaps in our knowledge of runes with childlike enchantment rather than racial history serves to counter somewhat the racialising of the script that Tolkien saw being put into effect in Germany. He was to some extent using one world myth to counter a darker one, and Tolkien was no doubt aware of the limitations and contradictions of such an endeavour, that obscene myth can best be countered by historical fact. As Christine Chisholm argues, Tolkien's mythology ultimately assents to its own mortality and agrees to fade for that very reason, although he was perhaps not aware of quite how compelling and enduring his fictional world would prove to be, precisely, I think, because it so often resembles the real. The problem with his appropriation of runes in particular is that few people are aware of its historical origins and uses and in a position to differentiate the invented from the kernel of truth. It's therefore particularly susceptible to mythical appropriation, for the fiction of Middle-earth to substitute for a gap in our cultural knowledge, for runes, in short, to become synonymous with dwarves. As this short paper has made clear enough, the runic script is undoubtedly the most consistently misrepresented of all writing systems. A dubious accolade, and one that's perhaps had the effect of turning scholarly runology into a rather reactionary and conservative discipline, in turn obscuring what's truly fascinating about the script. Not only that it provides the first written records of the Anglo-Saxons and the peoples of Scandinavia, being of great linguistic and historical importance, but that it represents an alternative conception of writing to the dominant Latin script, which we now use with such comfortable familiarity, often posing a deliberate challenge to the reader, playing with form and meaning, and incorporating materiality and artwork into what Judith Yesh calls the complete expression of the text. As for its intriguing mysteries, they should simply give us pause for thought. Perhaps people had a different awareness of what it meant to write, and the priorities of the script. A little bit of ignorance with regard to its origins and foundational principles is a healthy reminder of this difference, and does not call for a world of speculation to fill the gaps.